Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking all about how young people today think about sex and the complicated sexual landscape they are facing. We'll be exploring whether young men and women are getting what they want out of sex, the mixed messages our culture is sending to them, and how our youth are navigating conversations around consent. We'll also discuss how sex education needs to change, as well as tips for parents on starting healthy and productive conversations about sex with their kids. My guest today is Peggy Orenstein, author of the New York Times bestsellers, Boys and Sex, Girls and Sex, and Cinderella Ate My Daughter. Her TED Talk, What Young Women Believe About Their Own Sexual Pleasure, has been viewed over 5 million times. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, so let's dive in. Hi, Peggy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you. I love this podcast. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I've been following your work for a very long time because you write extensively about sex and sex education. So to kick off our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into writing and speaking about sex in the first place? What was it that drew you to this topic? I don't know. You know, I can't say that I, you know, when I was a little girl, I thought, I know what I want to do when I grow up. You know, honestly, I think part of it is the time that I grew up, though. I grew up at a time, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, that was sort of between when the the advent of the pill and the AIDS crisis. And it was a time that was very, you know, we were, I was kind of the, the, in the, in the backsplash of the second, of second wave feminism. And, you know, we, we were all given our bodies ourselves the day we got to college and all this kind of stuff. And it was a very, um, for at least a certain demographic of girls, it was a very kind of positive time, um, to be a girl pursuing sexual desire and connection. And, um, and so, I guess I had gotten interested way back then. You know, I was interested in abortion rights. I was interested in the politics of sexual pleasure. It was sort of baked into my education. And it sort of followed me along in, in my work over, over time. I wrote early on about reproductive rights. And, and then when I wrote my first book, which was called Schoolgirls, that was about partly about educational inequity, it became a lot more about body and sexuality and these other things. And I always thought, I got to go back to that got to go back to that. And I did some other stuff, but then, you know, I had a daughter and suddenly I thought, huh, I wonder, you know, and I, and I was doing Cinderella at my daughter, which we mentioned, which was about girly girl culture and how that was affecting girl's sense of femininity, selfhood, uh, the commercialization of little girlhood. And I thought, so how is this pink and pretty culture that's teaching them to define themselves from the outside in rather than the inside out? How is that actually playing out when they get older? So it seems sort of like the right time to go in and start asking those questions. And then it ended up being the right time in terms of the culture, because it, I started doing the interviewing right when all these conversations about sexual consent sort of hit the media. Yeah, it is absolutely the perfect time to be having well, these just discussions. Just like that was serendipity. And, but I, you know, I mean, the short answer to your question, Justin, is really like, why wouldn't you? I mean, like, what could be more interesting? <laughs> What's a better window into 
you know, our, our humanity and who we are and our psychology. And I mean, it takes you everywhere, right? I, I love that answer. Why wouldn't you want to write about sex? Like, yeah. that, that's what I'm going to start saying. So I'd like to turn to your books, Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex. And for those books, you interviewed dozens of high school and college age boys and girls about their sex lives at a time when most people really began exploring their sexuality for the very first time. And I know a lot of people have a lot of difficulty when it comes to talking about sex with their partners, let alone with a total stranger. So how did you get these young folks to open up to you and how forthcoming were they about their sexuality? You know, people always ask me that and there's no trick. I mean, the, I, I mean, I'm not their parents, so I think that helps. I think in some ways it is easier to talk to a stranger in the way that it's easier to talk to a therapist. And they treated it very much often like sort of a quasi-therapy session. And they would say things like, that was so cathartic, or, you know, I never told anybody that. It feels so good to talk about it. So it, it, it was partly just that I gave them the space and said, you know, this is what I'm doing. I, I want to know about you. Knowing about you is going to help other people. And, um, and I can't say, honestly, I, I'm the parent of a teenager myself. And it is harder to do that with my own child. I mean, we have more talks, I think, than the average bear, but I don't find out quite the nitty gritty detail with what probably shouldn't with my own child that I would if I was interviewing somebody. You know, and I found something similar in surveying people about their sexual fantasies. You know, I mm -hmm. often get asked, how did you get thousands of people to open up about their sexual fantasies when a lot of people aren't telling their partner <laughs> about them, let alone to a total stranger on the internet. But people really seemed to want to talk about it and really opened up. And some people, when they're describing their sexual fantasies, will write pages about them. And it is sort of that quasi-therapeutic session in some ways, because sometimes you're providing the space where for the first time in somebody's life, they can really talk about these issues. And I think your experience in interviewing adolescents and young adults and the fact that they were so open and willing to talk about their sex lives suggests that they really do want to talk about this stuff. They did. And, you know, I'll say, I mean, obviously those are the ones who made it into the book. The ones that were <laughs> we're having that, that's so much. But the other, the thing that was even more surprising to me when I break that down a little further is the boys, because I really was pretty resistant to doing, to the idea of doing a book on boys. And it's why I didn't do a book on everybody to begin with. You know, I felt that you know, there'd been more changes because of feminism and girls experience, you know, th these sorts of things. But also I had a bias and the bias was that if I tried to interview boys that I'd get a whole transcript made up of, yep, nope, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and plus I looked like their mom. So I, I just worried that they, they wouldn't talk. And I think one of the biggest, maybe the biggest takeaway from that experience, from the writing about the boys was how much they did want to talk. And how much they needed to talk and how little space they had in the culture and how few trusted adults there were that they could really talk to. Yeah, it, it's so true. And again, I, I saw something similar in studying people's sexual fantasies because I've done a ton of sex studies over the last couple of decades. And pretty much every time I do an online survey, I have way more women than men who participate in it. But when I studied sexual fantasies, that was the first time I had more men than women respond. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I think it is interesting because men... I found in the research actually feel a lot more shame and guilt about their sexual fantasies than women do. And so that leads 
them to hold things back from their partners. And so they don't talk about their fantasies with anyone. And so it was really a chance for them to really kind of dive into and, and unpack some of those fantasies for the very first time for some of these folks. And so I think, you know, our experiences kind of challenge a lot of these stereotypes that we have around men that men don't want to talk and that men don't want to be vulnerable. And clearly they do. They just don't really have the safe spaces or what feels like a safe space for them to explore these issues. You know, I had this conversation just before COVID. I was speaking at, it was actually, it was a boarding school and I was talking to this group of sophomore boys, sophomore in high school. And afterwards I had lunch with some of them and we had talked about ideas about masculinity and gender and sexuality and all these things. And one of the guys said to me, you know, everything, I agree with everything you said. It, it was really meaningful, but tonight I'll go back to my dorm and maybe I can have a conversation like you're suggesting that, you know, is vulnerable with one of my friends at the dorm or with my roommate. But what I don't know is if the next day when the sun shines, if they'll weaponize that against me. And so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And that's something. It, it is something. And that's a 15-year-old having like that level of self-awareness and also that level of self-protection. Yeah. And I, I wish I could say I was surprised, but, you know, I, I think talking about sex, being vulnerable, we're, we're always afraid of people weaponizing that against mm -hmm. us. And, you know, again, just to tie it back to fantasies one more time, that's a reason why a lot of people don't share their fantasies with a partner is because they're afraid of that being used against them in some way if their partner finds their fantasy to be disgusting or taboo or, or something else along those lines. So I think all of that points to the need for us to, to have more of these spaces where we can talk about sex and to be vulnerable. Now, in conducting all of these interviews that you did, I'm curious to hear what you learned about how young people today define terms like sex and virginity. And we know that these concepts are constantly evolving. They can vary across time and culture. And so I want to look at where we are today and how youth define what it means to have sex or to lose their virginity. And I know that a lot of people don't like that term virginity, which is why many people use the term sexual debut instead, mm -hmm. which I like. And, you know, it, it sounds, sounds like, like a party. Exactly. <laughs> there should be some musical number that accompanies it. But of course, a lot of people still use that term virginity. Yeah. So where are we today with these things? What did you find? I wish that we had changed more. And, and I, I sat in one of my favorite scenes was sitting in sex education class with a wonderful teacher named Karis Dennison. And she was doing this exercise where she'd say, everybody who thinks this goes over here. Everybody thinks this goes over there. You're not allowed to stand in the middle. You have to go. And one of them was, you know, is somebody who has had oral sex still a virgin? And the kids all went to the no side of the room, except for like three mm -hmm. of them, you know? And she said, okay, so you're telling me that my friend who is female and gay and has had 500 sexual partners, but never had heterosexual intercourse is a virgin. And they kind of all went, Oh, and then like a bunch of them went, but it's still so, I, and, and I really try when I, I mean, it's not, not when I'm interviewing necessarily, but when I'm, when I'm talking to kids or even talking to parents too. And, and you know, I think we all do it. We all tend to sit, use sex as a substitute for PVI. And yet I'm always trying to broaden the notion of what sex means, because the broader that is, the more possibilities there are for satisfaction and the more, you know, and, and we learn so much from queer sexualities about that and about what is then possible if we could break down that, 
you know, kind of binary thinking that heterosexuals tend to have. And one of the things that was really clear was that by not defining oral sex, particularly as sex, that that was really problematic. It was opening the door to a lot to risk and disrespect in heterosexual coupling. So what I was seeing was that girls would say to me all the time, oral sex was no big deal. Like they'd all read the same Instagram post or something. And what they meant by that was it was no big deal if they were performing it on a guy. The other way around was a big deal. And so they would say, you know, they, they had all kinds of reasons, like it was, it was, it would improve their social status or it would, it was a way to get closer without having what they feared would be the intimacy of intercourse or a guy expected to be satisfied. And this, it was a way to do it that was impersonal was what they would say. And I think, I don't know, penis in my mouth is kind of personal. I don't know. <laughs> Call me crazy. But after a while I started, I started saying to them, you know, what if so every time you're with a guy, he asked you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen and you never, you know, he never got you one. They would not stand for that. Those girls would not stand for that. And they would laugh and say, well, when you put it that way, and I, and I was like, well, why wouldn't you put it that way? Why would you think that performing a non-reciprocal sex act was more acceptable than somebody not getting a glass of water? You know, and, and it was it was a combination of things that had to do with their feelings about their own bodies, but also this kind of basic thing that still exists, that male sexual entitlement is primary and that we measure a successful, in, in a heterosexual coupling, we measure sexual kids, particularly young people, measured the success of a sexual experience using male pleasure. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was that when you look at same-sex parents among adolescent girls, uh, the orgasm gap disappears. And girls um, climax at the same rate as heterosexual men. So you can see that whether it's, you know, they're obviously prioritizing different things or they're, you know, girls tend to be more focused on their partner, whatever it is, it's not like it has to be that way. But that's the script. I get a lot of email from young people, and that is one of the big things that they comment on. It's like they never thought about the oral sex script that way. And I just think, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah, and everything you say is very consistent with other research I've seen, especially that young adults tend to define sex pretty narrowly. You know, the only thing that people are largely in agreement about is that penile vaginal intercourse counts as sex. Most of them will also count penetrative anal intercourse as sex as well, but oral sex, not so much. Mutual masturbation, no. You know, and, and there is a lot more diversity when you look at sexual minorities, especially if you look at lesbian women. They have the most diverse definition of sex where they count more than 10 different activities as being sex. But if you look at gay men, they're actually, you know, kind of restricted in their view of sex in, in the same way that heterosexual adults tend to be, where they tend to define it more strictly in terms of penile anal penetration, and they don't tend to count oral sex. So I always say, I think there's a lot we can learn from lesbians in terms of how we define sex. You know, I have a whole section on that in Girls and Sex. And what I talk about is I talk to this girl and I ask her, how did you know you weren't a virgin anymore? And she sort of said, yeah, I really wondered about that. And so she Googled it. That was not helpful, it turned out, at least at that point. <laughs> So she, you know, she threw out a bunch of ideas and then she said, you know, when I think I stopped being a virgin, it was the first time I had an orgasm with a partner. And I thought, what if that was the definition for girls? <laughs> How would that change the whole way that we went about this thing? And it just really blew me away. I mean, I thought, what an interesting way to think about it. And the same, you know, I, and I also did too have a, a, a long conversation. I remember with a gay young man who said he was resisting the idea that 
penetrative anal sex was the definition of sex for him, but he also was having trouble. Like it also was. So he was sort of wrestling with like that narrowness of what sex means to cis gay men. And that was really interesting to hear about too. He was, you know, he was very adamant that that should not be the definition, but yeah, kind of was for him. Yeah. And you know, I've done a few other podcasts where we've talked about definitions of sex and why it's so important to expand them. And one of the reasons is that because what is pleasurable to you is something that can change a lot over the lifespan. Uh, Because as your body changes, what feels good to you sexually changes. Your psychological needs may change. And so the more expansive your view of sex is early on, the more opportunities and avenues for pleasure you'll have later. And in the research, we see that people who hold very narrow, restrictive views of sex into older age tend to be less sexually satisfied. They have more sexual difficulties. And so I think there's a lot to be said for expanding your definition and expanding it sooner rather than later. Now, let's talk about girls and sex. In recent decades, with the rise of feminism, there's been a push to empower women and to address gender inequalities. And obviously, there's still a very long way to go, but the landscape has shifted to some degree. So, for example, more women are going to college now than they were in the past. And in fact, women now outnumber men in terms of college students and in terms of college degrees awarded. Now, you found in your work that while young women today feel more empowered in many ways, that doesn't necessarily seem to have translated into sexual empowerment. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And what did young women tell you about sexual empowerment? Yeah, it was something that was really easy to miss because they were so, you know, they were like leaning in all over the place in other ways. They were academically, I think you said at the beginning, the demographic I looked at was a pretty privileged demographic in the sense that they were college-bound high schoolers or college students. And so those girls were, you know, very able to articulate their ideas and they were, you know, they, they, they were amazing, but that all kind of fell apart in their intimate life. And it was just, there was so much silence around their bodies, you know, the pressures to, again, this was very much came out of the, out of Cinderella, my daughter as well, that, you know, to define yourself from the outside in, to perform sexuality, to perform a certain body image, all of that kind of stuff, as opposed to, you know, feel anything embodied. And I, I really talk a lot about that, that I feel like at the core of girls and sex, it was about the systematic disconnection of girls from body that happens from the get go. And the ways that, I mean, there's so many ways that happens, but one thing that really struck me was you certainly can't feel that sex is about you if nobody ever speaks of your pleasure as a thing, really, you know? And so I always talk about how in sex education classes, they tend to, you know, well, first of all, parents, it starts when you're born that your parents don't even, um, they tend to give the boys genitals a name, but not the girls. Like Mm -hmm. that's just like, empty in there. And you can't, that's how you make something unspeakable, right? You don't give it a name. And then they go into puberty education and they see that boys have erections and ejaculations and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy, mm-hmm. which are not the same. Nope. And then you see that, you know, that inside, the thing that looks like a Georgia O'Keeffe painting or steers head or something that grays out between the legs. We never say vulva. We never say clitoris. Did you know the puberty books, Karen, Keeping of You? I'm not familiar with that one. It's sort of the basic book that it's by American Girl and just basically all girls get that at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a one and there's a two. And they may have changed this now because I have 
been so vocal about this that I think it embarrassed them. But in care and keeping of you too, I think this is so emblematic. They had a diagram of the external genitalia. So, you know, vulva, labia, blah, blah, blah. No clitoris. Wow. No clitoris. I said, I actually drew it in on my daughter's clitoris. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what's wrong with this? And she looked at it and went, no clitoris. And I was like, right, let's draw it in, you know? <laughs> but like at, at that level, that level of, of silencing and erasure is so shocking. So no wonder, you know, and so, you know, as you probably know, statistically, I think it's fewer than half of girls 14 to 17 have ever masturbated. Mm-hmm. And then they go into their partner encounters and we think that somehow sex is going to be you know, they'll think that sex is about them and they'll be magically able to articulate their wants and desires and needs and limits. I mean, it's just completely, we set them up. We really set them up. It's not surprising that they feel this way at all, really. But because we're silent about it, we think that because we see these empowered girls in the public arena, that they must just be fine. They must be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that really points to the importance of if we want to teach girls and young women to be empowered, we have to talk about sex, right? It's not enough to just promote girl power and to, you know, encourage women to pursue the careers that they want and other things like that. We have to be talking about sex. And I think that that's where there's been this big disconnect is, you know, we've tried to address gender inequality in a lot of ways, but we're still so uncomfortable talking about sex. And so the empowerment doesn't translate over into that sexual context because we're not teaching people, we're not equipping them with the skills to be able to do that. And also in this conversation we're having about consent, and we are weirdly more comfortable talking about sexual assault and sexual pleasure, by the way. Yep. But by not talking about sexual pleasure, sexual entitlement, you know, about thinking about what you want, you know, what what this all means to you, having not necessarily even technical discussions, but these philosophical discussions too. Yeah. Now, as you've mentioned, and as you've written extensively, young women are being taught what they need to know about sexual pleasure. Their pleasure doesn't seem to be a priority when they go to have sex, particularly in a heterosexual context, where, as you mentioned, male pleasure is more likely to be prioritized. However, when people hear this, I think there's often a tendency for people to just reduce everything to orgasms and say, well, men are getting what they want, they're getting pleasure, and things aren't so great for women, but they're pretty good for men. But I think that's a really overly simplified and wrong view. Because when you interviewed boys about their sex lives, you found that it's a pretty complex picture for them too. And that, for example, they're not necessarily enjoying things like hooking up. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Are young men not getting what they want out of sex either? Not so much either. I mean, you know, the the research shows that most people don't like hookup culture, right? (laughs) They're not very happy with it. They do it. I had a conversation with the boy that I'd interviewed for Boys and Sex fairly recently. And he's a, a college, well, it was right, I guess it was right before the pandemic. And he was a college junior. And I said, well, what are you doing on Saturday nights now? And he said, oh, I just have friends over. We play board games. And um, I said, so you don't, you're not going out and hooking up anymore? And he said, "Ugh, no, <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> and I said, it's so weird that you all, it's, it's like hazing. You know, mm-hmm. why don't you tell the younger people that they're going to, this is no fun. And most of them aren't going to be very happy with this culture, you know, instead of just like making them all go through it so that they can get to their junior year when they're playing board games, hanging out with friends and meeting people that they, that they actually enjoy being with. He said, yeah, well, we should do that. <laughs> but yeah, with boys, it was really interesting um, because I guess the, you know, my, my sort of media side boy 
as I said, was girls get disconnected from their bodies, boys get disconnected from their hearts, right? And the sort of taboo against vulnerability for boys is really profound. And a lot of boys were wrestling it with much harder than um, and, and more intensely than I imagined that they would. Even those who were involved in hookup culture would say things like, you know, it's kind of weird. It's like two people, you know, know each other very well. You're drunk. It's like you're acting vulnerable without being vulnerable, which is weird. So they too didn't have the sort of capacity or the skills or the conversations to figure out their own experience either and figure out what it was that they wanted, what would feel good to them. They had the script and the script was that guys should be always wanting sex, always pursuing sex, not care about connection. And that did not fit for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important point that, yeah, they might be having sex and having orgasms more consistently on average, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're happier with that state of affairs. And this ties back to a conversation I had with Lisa Wade on the podcast a little while back about hookup culture and how, you know, hookup culture only works for a fairly small segment of the college population. And for most of them, it doesn't work. And a lot of people are sort of reluctant participants in it. And so it's just a much more complex (laughs) and nuanced conversation. I love Lisa. She's my hero. But yeah, I mean, I remember having a conversation with a group of boys and one of them who was this sort of like really, I don't mean to stereotype, but you know, he was like, he looked like the classic frat boy. He was blonde. He was strapping all these things. And we were talking about hookup culture and, and he was saying that he really wanted to have a relationship, but he wasn't really finding anybody. And he was talking about why I I was saying something about like uh, that, that girls, one of the things that really struck me in girls and sex was how low the bar was for the morning after for being like a decent human being and how few people reached it. Like, text, just texting. <laughs> yeah. How you doing? You know, that, that was like, they would be so excited if that happened. I was like, what is the deal that guys won't do that? And he said, well, I just took up with a girl recently and we passed each other in campus and I averted my eyes. Oh gosh. And I said, why, why did you avert your eyes? And he said, well, I don't know what she's thinking. You know, I don't know if she thinks it was just something that happened at a party or if she's thinking she wants something more. And, you know, it was, this is sort of the equivalent of almost the oral sex conversation that I have with girls. He said, so I didn't want to risk it. So I just averted my eyes. And I said, so you just said a minute ago that you wanted to have a relationship. And so you would rather miss out on the opportunity to connect with this person. He said, oh, what he said was, I don't want to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I said, then, you know, take one little step into vulnerability so that that could happen. And he just said, yeah, that's right. He didn't look happy about it, but he's like, yeah, that's right. So that, you know, it was definitely, I think this is pretty clearly true hookup culture. You know, you get an adrenaline rush, you get a warm body, you get a story to tell your friends. That's the main thing, right? But you don't typically get good sex, even Mm -hmm. no matter who you are. And you don't typically build the tools that you're going to need to have either good sex or emotional intimacy. And, you know, that said, some people like it. It's true. And, and I don't, I'm not judging that, but I think that this sort of idea that it's the, you know, apotheosis of sexual experience and that we're all supposed to like it. And then the confusion of going into it and thinking, but I don't like it, but I'm supposed to like it. So I'm going to do it again. You know, that maybe just deconstructing it a little bit can help people make choices that work for them, whatever those choices are. Yeah, so many important points there. And, you know, it's making me think more broadly about how we often get embedded in social systems where we don't support what's going on, but then we end up participating in it consensually. Like we agree to take part in this, even though it's not serving our interests and it's not really what we want to do. 
And then also, you know, there is that big piece of insecurity there and that fear of rejection. And I think that inhibits a lot of this sexual and romantic communication because people might want a relationship, but they're afraid to put themselves in that position of vulnerability because the rejection would be worse than not getting the relationship that they want. It's it's kind of mind-blowing that, <laughs> you know, we're yeah. at that place where we can't even go for these things we want because we're so afraid, so vulnerable when it comes to, to rejection. Humans, you know, humans. Yep. <laughs> well, we have much more to discuss, including sex and pleasure among LGBTQ youth and tips for parents on talking to your kids about sex. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? If so, you need the best recording platform out there, and it's Zencaster. I've tried several programs for my own podcast, but for me, Zencaster is where it's at. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. This episode of the Sex and Psychology Podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author, Peggy Orenstein. So, so far, we've been talking largely about young men and women and how they approach sex in a heterosexual context. But in your work, you also spoke to LGBTQ youth. So tell us a little bit more about what you learned from speaking with sexual and gender minorities and how are their experiences with sex and sexual pleasure similar or different compared to their cisgender heterosexual counterparts? Well, I spoke a little earlier about the idea with girls who have sex with other girls that uh, both ideas about pleasure and ideas about what sex is and ideas about what orgasm is, or, or the role of orgasm or how, how often one orgasms is radically different than among heterosexuals. And that was, I think, a really important thing to surface. And with cis gay boys, one of the things that was really interesting to me, I mean, there was there were so many things, but... Um, <laughs> One of the things that in, in terms of, and, and not that everything had to filter out through like what the rest of us can learn from that, but I think that is, it is important to, to, to know that their negotiation of consent was so much more proficient than heterosexual kids. And I mean, I think partly because it sort of had to be because who is going to be doing what with whom and how is not always, you know, so obvious. But also, I just remember having a conversation with a boy who said, I don't understand heterosexual guys' resistance to the consent conversation because, you know, when we start talking about consent, it means we're going to have sex and that's great. <laughs> so what's the problem, you know? And Dan Savage, the who, you know, the sex columnist, had, had said to me at one point that 
I, I asked him about that and he said, yeah, it's the four magic words. What are you into that yep. start gay, um, encounters, gay male encounters. And I loved that because it was so open-ended, right? I mean, it ruled anything in anything out. It allows you constru- uh, theoretically to, do, to construct an experience that works for you, which is not to say that, you know, gay men don't have issues with assault or, or coercion or any of that. Of course they do. But, but this piece was really crucial. And I, and, and, and again, you know, going back to kids and even going back to heterosexuals, I remember being in a, giving a talk at a girl's school and a father raised his hand afterward and said, I, I really struggle with consent because it seems like what is always happening is that it's a yes or no thing that boys are asking girls. And he was absolutely right. That is how it's framed. It's framed like, heterosexual boys asking heterosexual girls questions to which they can respond yes or no. That does not give room for creating something unique between, you know, partners. And that said, I do fear that if a heterosexual boy said, what are you into to a heterosexual girl? The answer might be, I have no earthly idea Mm -hmm. because of the way we socialize girls. Right. But you got to start somewhere. So that was a, a really interesting and important and consistent thing that I found. On the other hand, the lack of inclusion of LGBTQ plus kids in, you know, any form of sex education, as limited as our sexual education is, and by inclusion, I mean not just addressing them, but addressing them as just the way we address heterosexual kids, not not like sort of marginalizing or, you know, making it, you know, separate, but true inclusion. It was having some pretty concerning consequences, particularly in this era, I was finding with, with boys that were minors, um, that were in high school, that they were going on grinder and lying about their age and, mm-hmm. and hooking up with much older men anonymously. And, and their parents, of course, had no idea. Their friends had no idea. Their parents had never talked to them that we sort of accept. I mean, of course, we're more accepting, we're more inclusive as a society, you know, than we used to be. But it's almost a, like it's a social identity rather than a sexual identity that we talk about. And so when we're talking about the issues of sex, as hard as it is, particularly for straight parents, you know, to talk about to their, to their straight kids about sex, they don't know what to do when they're, when they're dealing with kids who aren't. And it's so important to educate yourself because, you know, it might be your kid that's the one that's going off and doing that at age 15 or 16. And I remember having a conversation with one boy who said to me, well, but, you know, I always go to their houses because it's safer because he had just recently gone to a hotel to meet some guy. And I said, look, I don't mean to put too fine a point on it here, but you go to somebody's house, your parents don't know, your friends don't know. He's a stranger. He could chop you up into little pieces and bury you in the backyard. Nobody would ever find you. At least in a hotel, somebody can hear you scream. You know, I mean, like it's they're kids and they don't Mm -hmm. have the maturity to negotiate what could be an incredibly dangerous um, situation for them. So that was very worrisome. And that is on us. You know, that's yeah. not on them. That's on us for not providing both adequate education and for not providing experiences and the possibility of experiences that would be the equivalent of hopefully their, the best experiences of their heterosexual peers where they are allowed to, you know, meet, fall in love, explore sex, and, and have the kinds of adolescent experiences that would be age-appropriate to them. And I think that's such a compelling argument for why inclusive, comprehensive sex education is so important. So important. So important. Not just important for consensual, pleasurable sex, but also for for safety. 
Yeah. And for making sure that, you know, that those students aren't marginalized by their straight peers. If we model that marginalization, you know, that's how they feel. And then, you know, the the trans and I I didn't talk to so many non-binary kids and, and the trans trans identities really were broke in the media in, in 2015, which was right as I was finishing girls and sex. So I, I didn't, there's not much in there either, but, but in boys and sex, I, I did more. And there were a couple things that were really interesting with those boys that one was that we tend to, again, we tend to focus on the coming out story and the social identity story, but we don't talk very much about what it means to develop as a sexual person when the parts of your body that we typically derive pleasure from are the parts that make you feel dysphoric. And how do you, how do you seek sexual satisfaction? How do you find joy and sexual satisfaction in, in those contexts? So I think that's a big question that isn't being asked to young trans people. But then the, the, the kind of, again, you know, the thing that I felt I learned from as a heterosexual was that particularly one of the boys would talk about just kind of offhandedly, he'd kind of, we'd be having a conversation. He'd go, well, you know, that's not really my masculinity. And then somebody said, well, yeah, you know, that's my masculinity. That did, like he was picking from a buffet of choices mm-hmm. and constructing this thing. And I thought, what if we all did that? That was a <laughs> cool thing that he was doing. He didn't know he was doing it sort of. It was sort of like unconscious, but it was an amazing sort of way he had of conceptualizing masculinity as a series of choices that he could make and build. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, masculinity, femininity, the way you express your gender, it can be anything that you want it to be. It's what mm-hmm. feels right to you at that point in time, and it can change. And I think that's where a lot of us run into difficulty is that we cling very closely to this very rigid gender role, and we feel like we can't deviate from it. And I think that's at the root of a lot of the sexual problems that we've been discussing is that people are trying to fit into a box, a certain role, and they're not willing to explore what their sexuality, what their gender could be if they opened themselves up to the idea that, hey, there are other possibilities. There isn't just one way to do gender or to do your sexuality. Now, much of what we've been discussing points to a need for better sex education. So what do you think we should do differently when it comes to teaching kids about sex? I mean, I know parents need to play a role in this, which we'll get into in a moment. But what do schools need to do differently? You know, what should school-based sex ed look like? I mean, it's it's so hard to talk about right now because, you know, the, the school-based sex ed has been lumped in with discussions of racial inequity and systemic inequity mm-hmm. and, and, and targeted by right-wing activists. So I know that I recently there was a teacher in Connecticut, or two teachers that got into huge trouble for assigning a piece from my book from, from boys. It was actually the piece that ran in the Atlantic, the excerpt, which isn't even, I don't know. I don't know what that is. It, it didn't, I couldn't, I didn't understand it at all. It started a whole brouhaha. One of them was suspended and wasn't even allowed to go on campus to pick up her own child. And then the the superintendent ended up writing a letter to the whole school, apologi- to the whole district, apologizing for having assigned this story. And then it became something with the school board. And it was clearly all linked to the sort of backlash against what they're calling critical race theory, but they don't really even know what that means. And 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 I and I worried because I I don't want to see somebody fired 
you know, and lose their livelihood. And, and it was having a very chilling effect. One of the teachers said to me, he wasn't going to assign these sorts of things anymore. He couldn't risk it. He had kids of his own, you know, he had to make a living. So it's really hard to imagine. I mean, I, I see such magnificent sex education programs in select private schools like, um, uh, Shafia Zaloum, who works at Urban, or Karis Dennison, um, who I write about in Girls and Sex and works at various schools, or Al Vernacchio outside of Philadelphia. There's people who are just doing wonderful work, but it's hard to imagine how we could push that movement forward when sex ed is at the center of the culture wars. I mean, that said, you know, the model is is the dutch model right i mean it's so clear that the way and 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 in this country i think there's a great model too which is the unitarian churches model uh, called our whole lives that does sex ed from something like age five to age 70 and is magnificent and they have a a curriculum available at a nominal fee that is not faith-based too you can you know that that's wonderful for for those looking for something like that but you know in holland they have so much better outcomes than we do on every you know, in everything, whether it's, you know, things like less pregnancy and disease or more enjoyment or responsibility or not being drunk or, you know, whatever it is, being able to articulate your wants, needs, and, and limits, all of it. And what kids say when, when they're interviewed about that is that their parents, doctors, and teachers talk to them early and often about sex, about pleasure, and about connection. And what really struck me when I was looking at that research was that American parents weren't necessarily less comfortable talking about sex, but we tend to talk about it exclusively in terms of risk and danger. Mm-hmm. And the Dutch talk about it in terms of responsibility and joy. And I think even trying to make that shift, what does that mean? What does it mean to talk about responsibility and joy instead of just don't risk, danger, stop, would start a different kind of conversation. Yeah, I think you raised so many important points, you know, and one being the peril of being a sex educator in this, at this particular point in time. Yeah. And even just trying to add that component of pleasure to a sex education course can be something that can cost you your job, right? Mm-hmm. Because all it takes is one parent complaining and things can spiral out from there. And so there is a lot of resistance to this. And, you know, there is no federal mandate in the U.S. for sex ed. It's all, you know, variable from state to state. And some states require it, some don't. But even in the states that do require it, they don't necessarily require that it's medically accurate. So it's like, we just need to teach you something, but we don't care what the hell you're going to teach people about. And so that creates so much inconsistency in what kids today are learning. And it it really is unfortunate because, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast, you talk a lot in your work about all of the problems and issues that young adults are having navigating sex, but nothing is changing in terms of the educational component. I shouldn't say nothing is changing, but it's changing at a very, very, very slow rate. And it's just not keeping pace with, with where kids today are. So I know we're, we're running short on time, but I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that parental piece. And, you know, any tips you might have for, for example, when do you start having conversations about sexuality with your kids? And, and what can you do to promote healthy, productive conversations and, and keep those lines of communication open? Justin, you start at birth. 
And that's the God's honest truth, right? You know, you start by naming body parts correctly. If you would not call your elbow your woo-woo, do not child's vulva her woo-woo, you know? You start when they're two, and you know how you probably know toddlers masturbate all the time. And, you know, saying, it feels really good to touch your vulva, or it feels really good to touch your penis, but, you know, we don't do it at grandma's Thanksgiving table, we do that you know, in our, in our rooms and lessons on consent that involve, you know, if, if, if aunt Nancy wants to hug your child and your child doesn't want to hug aunt Nancy, suck it up, aunt Nancy, you know, that those are lessons in consent. You don't hug people on the playground if they don't want to hug you easy. You know, those aren't even about sex. Those are just easy things. Having books in the house, like the Roby Harris books, which are, you know, phenomenal or sex is a funny word or something when, when your kids are little, um, is really important. So you have, you have, I mean, on my website, I have, which is my name, PeggyNorsey.com. I have resources for parents with kids of all ages, but it's easier. It's going to be easiest if you start when they're young and scaffold, that's going to be your, your, you know, you're going to be able to go, oh yeah, this is pretty, you know, this, this, this is possible. You enter when a kid's 16, it's going to be harder. Um, not undoable, you know, you can say, geez, yeah, I just realized we haven't, you know, I really haven't had these important conversations with you. And in that case, I say, enter where you can enter. And and don't think of it as one conversation. I mean, you wouldn't have like, if you were teaching your kid table manners, you wouldn't say, okay, sit down. Here's a knife. Here's a fork. Here's how you cut your meat. Uh, don't burp at the table. This is how you use a napkin. Say, please pass. Say, thank you. Um, say, please, may I be excused? Okay, we never have to have this conversation again. Go forth and be polite. You know, you wouldn't do that. You have to tell a kid 500,000 times to say thank you before they do it on their own, right? And, and so why would you think that would be different? You know, so you have to have the, take these little opportunities to have conversations that are not just about sex or not just about technical things, but that are about, you know, respect, that are about personal relationships, that are about gender in the media, that are about gender dynamics. I mean, it's part of being a citizen. It's part of being a person. It's part of having ethics in our world. And it's part of allowing your child to be equipped so that they will, you know, have or do the least amount of harm and have and experience and give the most amount of pleasure. Uh So I just, you know, and and to recognize for parents who do, who haven't so much had these cocks and and have older kids, you know, you don't have to be perfect. None of us were parented this way. I don't know about you, but I wasn't. And it's not easy to learn how to do this, right? But, but it's like a muscle and you practice and, so start where you can start. You don't have to know all the questions. You don't have to know all the answers. Just start where you can start. And ideally, like in the car where you're, you know, they can't escape and you don't have to make eye contact or when you're for a, going for a walk or playing ball or, you know, doing something where you're not like sitting down and going, okay, we're going to have this talk or letting them be the expert on their experience too. Saying, don't, don't ask like, you know, so are you watching porn? But, you know, you might say like, so, oh, you know, what role do you think porn is having among your peers or you know what do you see in hookup culture or how are people navigating their relationships on social media that you're you know what what, how do you think that's working for this generation because we didn't have it so that you can get them sort of talking about what their experience is instead of just telling them what their experience ought to be so those are a few things I think that's all great advice and and especially the piece about breaking it up into these little chunks I think that's so important because it can make this all a lot less intimidating, right? That you yeah. don't need to get everything out there all at once. And you're just doing these little parts here and there. And it's age appropriate, giving them what they need to know at different stages of development. Yeah. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Peggy, and for all of your great tips and advice. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can oh, you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and get their hands on your books? Um, well, I guess they can go to my website, right? It's PeggyOrnstein.com. 
Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you. And I love this podcast. I really do. That's so nice to hear. Thanks so much. (laughs) Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, which was made on Zencaster, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and all of Peggy's wonderful books. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.